victory. He sent his son in victory. And so we are so thankful that God will never fail. And we're so thankful to be in this house together with you on this morning. I give honor and praise to God, to the shepherd of this house in his absence, the wonderful and amazing Pastor Galen C. Clark. Woo! To the shepherd of my own house, Daryl W. Pierce. I'm loving that bow tie, baby, and the new jacket. Killing it today. And I looked over my shoulder and I saw my brothers of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated. Come on. I am so glad y'all are in the house. You're on the front, right? You're going to be my amen corner. And since I have the mic, I'm going to tell an A5A story just... When I was an undergraduate at the Texas A&M University, I was privileged to be Miss Black and Gold, Texas A&M University. And so I, uh, no, 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 no. The point is, when you win at the campus level, you go up to the next regional level to compete. Yeah, I'm telling them about it. So I had to come to Austin, to the Austin Hilton, to compete at the regional tournament. Do you know these brothers had a bathing suit contest? I'm still trying to talk them out of the bathing suit contest. I did not win the regional black and gold. I think my bathing suit was a little bit too modest for the brothers. Uh, but I'm so glad that we're all here. And I want to remind us that we're in a series that Pastor Clark started called Church Folk. Church Folk, and trying to redeem some of the naughtiness, some of the stain that sometimes exists when we talk about church folk in our society today. We're too judgmental, we're too divided, we're too hostile to non-believers, and our aim is to refit the name redesign what it is to be church folk, to, to make the world glad to see some church folk coming along. And we've talked about who we are as church folk and why that's amazing and what a beautiful assignment that is. And today, we're going to talk about one aspect of our church folkness that's wonderful and amazing. It's the fact that we are reconcilers. Say, church folk are reconcilers. We are reconcilers. It's a big word, and we're going to unpack it. But I want to start by making this stark observation. You can't disagree with me. You will lament about it. It is deeply distressing, but it is absolutely true. And that is that Sunday morning is the most racially segregated hour in the United States. Since the United States was founded in 1776, and even before that, in the entire era of enslaved Africans, the church was divided by race. Even when the Civil War came and the 13th Amendment was adopted to free the slaves and abolish slavery in all of the United States, the church remained divided along racial lines. In the era of Jim Crow from 1946 to 1968, when all of the country was divided, public accommodations, schools, universities, jobs, neighborhoods, the church remained divided. And even at the end of racial segregation in our country, even with the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and 65, even when we decided to take all the signs down, even when we repealed the red line laws, even when we decided that black folks could live in white neighborhoods, even when black folks got to go to law schools and universities that were previously excluded from them, even when the world opened up, the church was still divided. 
From 2008 to 2016, we call that kind of like the third reconstruction period in American history. We elected a black president. We were in unrelenting conversations about the implications of this phrase, Black Lives Matter. More and more black people were, were, were economically mobile and becoming more educated, attaining more wealth, buying more property, living into the American dream. But as I'm standing here today in 2023, after all of those victories, after all the centuries of walls coming down one by one, the American Christian church is still divided along racial lines. And this fact grieves God's heart. If we have division and hostility and tension and voluntary segregation, because we chose which church we were coming to today, then the heart of God is grieved. And not only do we have this racial division within our Protestant mainline churches, we got division in our Protestant lives. How many denominations in Christianity can you name? Baptist, Methodist, Episcopalian, Anglican, Assemblies of God, Pentecostal. And I, I, I just got this one hand. When I went to Wikipedia to send me a list, because I wanted to show you guys a list, the list on Wikipedia, 36 pages. Because we've divided ourselves on how we do church. We've divided ourselves on who can be the pastor, who can be the deacon, how baptism goes down, how communion goes down, what is the role of the woman. We divide ourselves in all those ways. And we show up on church on Sunday morning proclaiming to be the body of Christ. That, that's within the Protestant denomination. Let me take you back to the daggum uh, Protestant Reformation. The body of Christ is divided into two big sections, Catholicism and Protestantism. So the Catholics are on one side, the Protestants are on the other. There's infighting in all of these places, and everywhere you go, there's a racial divide. God is not pleased. This division impacts and it weakens our impact on the entire world. It dims the light we're supposed to be. It makes the salt we're supposed to have absolutely tasteless. And it gives church folks a bad name. Dr. King put it this way. He wrote a letter to the New York Times in 1964. And he said, look guys, I know we got extremists in our society. People who are especially racist. And people who are especially passive. He said, but it's not the extremist that I'm worried about. It's the great midstream of America that produces and preserves the racial chasm in American society. It's the indifference, the inflexibility, the inactivity of the religious community, of us, the clergy and the laity that's guaranteeing a worsening racial conflict. It is my contention, Denise's contention, that because of this division in the church over all these centuries, that explains why our churches are emptying out. The world doesn't see our love. It doesn't see our unity. We have cost the church its relevance in American society because we're not doing the stuff we're supposed to be doing. Every decade, a Gallup poll comes out 
or other studies bear out that fewer Americans are professing faith in our God, and even those who do are less often to attend church and be engaged actively. What does God want? What does God expect? God wants and desires and God expects our unity. Let me show you Ephesians 4. Make every effort. How many efforts? Every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Paul said that, and just to make the finer point, not only did he write that to the Galatians, excuse me, to the Ephesians, he also wrote it to the Galatians. Can I show it to you? This is what he said to them. He said, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you, all of us, we're baptized into Christ. We've clothed ourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. Nor is there male and female, for you are all one in who? Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. If we belong to Christ, we are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Do you see anything in there about what race we are? Do you see anything in there about what gender we are? Do you see anything in there about what citizenship, what country we belong to? No, we're all one because we are Abraham's seed and we are heirs according to the promise that God made to Abraham. All right, so we know that God wants, God expects and desires unity among us. Let's dig deeper. What does this unity look like? What, what is God calling us to and for? I see two metaphors in the scripture. One is the human body. Let's look at Romans. Romans 12, 5 says this. So in Christ, we, though many, form one body. And each member belongs to all the others. In 1 Corinthians, he put it this way. Just as one body through one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body. So it is with Christ. For we are all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but many. Think about this human body. Go back to fifth grade. Right? We learned about the systems in this body. We have a skeletal system. We have a muscular system. We got a cardiovascular system. We got a respiratory system. We have an um, endocrine system, a reproductive system. All of these systems at once in play, moving us, engaging us. The hand can't say to the foot you can't, that they're not worthy of one another. I don't need you. The image of our unity is that we are one body with different functions and parts, but we're moving together in some place in unison. That's why we love Joe Bland's vision. That's why we love Dream Together 2030, because that's what it's calling us to do. Be one body, walking together with our parts in the direction of love, one for another. That's what God expects. But unfortunately... We don't have a glorious moving body. We've got bones on the floor. Fragments of body parts in different places. Tethered together by Easter and Christmas. I don't know. But we're not linked. We're not joined. We're not pulling together in the same direction. Because we don't see each other as worthy 
of being in the same circles with one another. We disagree so much on doctrine, we can't stay aligned on the stuff we absolutely agree about. That God is God, that he sent us on. Just core Christian principles. We can do that. We can do that. I was about to step on Sherwin's toe earlier. He was all in my sermon. Because not only is the unity of God depicted in this body, this human body, but there's a glorious metaphor that Jesus uses that Sherwin mentioned. In John 17, this is how Jesus sees and prayed that we would be one. He said, my prayer is not for them alone, those being his disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. He's praying for us. He's praying for the people who would later believe in Jesus because of the message that the disciples began. And here's what he's praying in, in verse 21. That all of them, who was all of them? All of us who believe later. That all of them would be one. Father, just as you and me and I am in you. Just as you are in me and I am in you. What's he calling us to? A oneness that is like the oneness of the Godhead. May they also be in us so the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I am them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete what? Unity. Then the world will know. When will the world know? When will the world know? When we are brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. All right, let's press in. Jesus wants us to be one, even as he and the Father are one. What this scripture points us to is how God lives with God's self. We know from this passage in John that God is three in one, yes? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's a mystery how God can be God, three persons in one entity. But we understand and can appreciate with these feeble words, at least, that the, the triune God is living together in harmony one to another. They're living together in submission and honor one to another. And they have a very reciprocal, beloved community. They have a reciprocal, beloved community. And God expects us to have a harmonious relationship one to another, where we submit and honor one another in a reciprocal, beloved community. I wondered when I read this scripture, how is it that we didn't get this? How is it that we haven't been living like this for centuries? And this is the advanced class. I think y'all can handle it. It's because of how we understand God. One way to understand the Godhead and the triune God is in a power structure. God the Father's on top. God the Son is second. God the Holy Spirit is last. God the Father is creator of all things. Jesus the Son submitted to the creator of all things to give his life away, and the Spirit holds it all together. So when you understand God in a power structure and hierarchy, it's easy for you to get to some other power structures and hierarchies in society, yes? Follow me. You can easily get to the father rules the household, the mother is submissive to him, and the children do everything that the parents say. 
Now stay with me. Like I'm, that, that scripture, come on, my hold, somebody just, hold on, I'm, I'm going to take you somewhere. You can also, if you're, in, if you're in hierarchy, you can get to master and slave. If you're in hierarchy, you can get to human beings and then the creation underneath. If you stay in hierarchy. But a hierarchy is not is incomplete in terms of description of God and how the Godhead moves. The God God can be understood not in a hierarchy, but in a circle. In an egalitarian circle. Everyone plays their role, but everyone is equally valued. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit love each other, support each other, empower each other as one egalitarian, humanitarian love being that spits out to us. So a husband and a wife and children can be in a home harmoniously playing their roles, loving and submitting one to another like the Godhead. So when you get to master and slave, it gets a little more complicated. Because for centuries, we sit on those scriptures as a legitimate basis for chattel slavery in our country. Were we wrong? Did we misread it? In 2023, we we change up the way we think about it to employer and employee. That we have to honor our employers and we we, we do our work to our employers as as we do to God. But we have decided that the way we did this chattel slavery thing missed the mark on the united circle of harmony, giving to each person the value of their lives, giving to each other um, the, the scriptural promise that they were image bearers of God, honoring people of color in the same way that white people were honored in the scriptures. It's taken us some time to see the worthiness, the God breath on those who are lesser. So my my pull to you, my pull to us this morning is to see the Godhead completely. See the Godhead completely because how we see God, how we see the unity in God informs how we see the unity one to each other. Okay, why does this unity matter? Why does it even matter? Why why is Jesus praying that we would be one just as he and the Father are one? Why is Paul imploring us to be unified as the body of Christ and, and making the metaphor as to our human bodies with our various systems? There's two reasons why. In unity, there is abundance. In unity, there was abundance. When the new church first got itself together and Jesus had ascended and they were worshiping in houses and and understanding better what it is that just happened and how Jesus was the promised Messiah, the Bible says that all the believers were together and had everything in common. Everybody had what they needed. This is what Dream Together 2030 is frustrated about. How is it? that we can live in this country with all of this abundance and there's still food scarcity? How is it that we can live in this country with all of this abundance and we don't have adequate health care for people? How is it? Can we live in this country and, and, and education is not working for some of our kids? We know that when the church, when the church is unified, when the church is leveraging its resources to help one another, 
then there's abundance and we all have what we need and God is pleased. Yeah. Woo! Now here's the second reason that unity matters. The second reason is because in unity there is authenticity. Jesus said this, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. How are they going to know that we are Jesus' disciples? If we love one another. The authenticity of our faith, the authenticity of, of our adoration for and thanksgiving to Jesus Christ only shows up to a world when we love one another. We all together make God's name great. And our unity affirms the value and the effectiveness of our discipleship. It's not the quality of our preaching. It is not the gloriousness of our songs, although our worship team is absolutely amazing. It is not the beauty of these buildings. It's not even the checks we write. It is the love that we show one another that's going to make the world change. Okay. Moving on, we know we're divided. We know that pains the heart of God. We know that God wants us to be unified. That is God's will. And that is the way that we're going to have impact on the world as God's disciples in our generation. So what's the process? Like, How do we get from A to B? How do we get from broken to whole? And the answer is, the way we get from division to unity is through reconciliation. Say that word with me, reconciliation. Here's the big picture. Jesus is the reconciler, and we are messengers of that reconciliation. Let me show you how Jesus is the reconciler. Paul put it this way in Ephesians 2. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the, debar the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. All right, let's break this down for a second. Paul's talking about two groups. Two groups that through Jesus coming to die on a cross, there would be an erasure of this dividing wall of hostility. And the purpose is for Jesus' life and our belief in it to unite the two groups. What are the two groups? Who are the two groups? Is it black and white? Is it American and Russian? Is it man and woman? Two groups, Jews and Gentiles. Jews, the promised people of God, and Gentiles, the rest of us. Two groups. Jews, the chosen one, the persons through whom the seed of Abraham was birthed, the father of, of many nations, including the Jewish nation. Whole story of the Jewish nation told in the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. 
Jesus' main point, his main theme is, I'm coming to unify the two groups. That what I have for my chosen people is now open to everyone else. So when we put divisions on race and citizenship and gender, we are out of line with God's sense of the division he was pulling together through his life and through his sacrifice. Just two groups. We make, a, we make a confession of faith in Jesus, and we're in the group. Or we don't, and we're out the group. The purpose is to be in the group. The goal is for everyone to be in the group. All of us who are in the group, we're recruiting people in the group. But here's the deal. But, but this message is for the believers. It's for who us who are in the group. we got to be unified in the group. <laughs> if we're going to recruit people from outside the group that Jesus came to unify, to pull together, we got to get our act together. Get our bones off the floor. Put our skeleton up. Add our muscles and our nervous system. Because we got to do this thing in order to make the change in the world that Jesus was calling us to do. So Jesus is the reconciler, and we are messengers of that reconciliation. Look at 2 Corinthians 5. This is the sum total of the sermon at the very end. This is the main point. 2 Corinthians 5, 18. All of this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. What? Let's stop right there. The reconciliation is that we can be daughters and sons of the Most High God. Through our confession and belief that he is Lord, we become engrafted Gentiles into the bloodline. Into, to be joint heirs with Christ into the promise of God. So that then becomes our message. He has committed us to the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. What's, what are we imploring people to do? We implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. The cross has two beams, right? The vertical beam can be a symbol of our reconciliation, each one of us to God. And the cross beam then becomes our responsibility to, to open our hands and hearts to give the message of reconciliation to others. The next time you put that cross on your neck or you put it on your, the next time you look at it, remind yourself Christ is a reconciler. And you, we, are put here to be united with our brethren to message this reconciliation. I'm going to tell you a little about, about reconciliation because I think it's important. Through Dream Together 2030, I have met some amazing people in Austin who absolutely love God and are teaching us all new things. And one of the great people that I've met, his name is Thomas Codgedale, and Thomas and his wife Amy have a ministry that they call Christ the Reconciler. And it's run here in Central Texas, and they are essentially just a lay community living out the promise of John 17, that we would all be one in Christ. And they're the way they're called to reconciliation is to that big level of disconnect, to try to reconcile Catholicism with Protestantism, to reconcile relationships between Catholics and Protestants. It's big work, it's amazing, but one of the things that Thomas wrote, I want to apply to our context today, this racial reconciliation. And Thomas says this, he says reconciliation is a series of actions that remove hostility in a relationship, repairs the damages it caused, 
and restores God's intended unity. You see the movements in that? Remove a series of actions, a series of actions to remove hostility, to repair the damage that the tension caused and to restore God's intended unity. So let me just remind you that Jesus did this thing, right? Like he came to remove the hostility between us and God. He did a series of actions by loving on people while he was here, by affirming women while he was here. I always have to tell you guys that by, by shutting down economic structures that kept poor people poor, by holding the tax collectors accountable, a series of actions that removed hostility to those that were being oppressed. And he repaired the damage that it caused by healing and loving and lifting and affirming. And then the sacrifice of his own body and the bleeding of his own blood, he was able to restore us to his intended unity. And that's the big picture, and that's amazing, and that we, we always give thanks to God for. Our salvation is, is just priceless, and we live and walk in it every day. But one of my favorite stories about Jesus and reconciliation happened long before the cross. It was when he decided he was going to tear down some racial discontent in his town, in his season. See, the Jews and the Sumerians had a beef long back to Jacob. And they, kind of like American society, had real tension. Not necessarily between black and white, like we did and do, but between Jews and Samaritans. Because neither one of them thought that the other one was really legitimate in the way they were handling their business. So much so, the Jews and the Samaritans were so distinct, they had segregated accommodations. When the Jews wanted to go somewhere, they walked all the way around Samaria. You didn't go through Samaria, because that's where they live. And we don't deal with those folks. But Jesus, being who he is, one afternoon said, I, I must needs go through Samaria. I I've got to go to the other side. I I've got to go where the hostility and the tension is. I've got to go see about this because I'm about what? Reconciliation. Because I came to remove hostility. So he goes to Samaria. And it's a long walk. And he has a seat at a well. And thank you, V. Yes, he has a seat at Jacob's well. This is the source of all the tension and the disconnect. This is the place where they have their theological constructs not aligned. He sits himself right on Jacob's well. He sat down by the, by the well, and the Bible says it was about noon. So the sun is high, and Jesus is in this forbidden, forbidden place. And as he's sitting there, a woman comes up. This woman comes up, and she is coming to the well to get some water. And when she comes up, she's a bit startled to see this Jewish man sitting on Jacob's well. And then Jesus has the audacity to start the conversation. Say, start the conversation. We need audacity to start a conversation. We gotta start a conversation. Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Now, y'all, every sister in this room is like, no, he didn't. No, he didn't. I'm coming to this well to get my water, go back to where I'm not, I'm not fooling with him. I, I'm not have him on my mind. Is he flirting with me? Like, what is he doing? I don't have time for this. And she decides to engage the conversation. See, somebody's got to have the audacity to start the conversation. And then somebody on the other side has got to continue in the conversation. 
She puts the whole theological construct on the table. Wait a minute, brother, wait a minute. You are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan. So how can you even ask me for it? Why are you talking to me? We don't do that. You and your clan, I'm in my clan. We, 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 we read the scriptures how we read them. We understand Jacob how we want to understand Jacob. You're going to understand Jacob how you understand. Don't, don't bother me. Why are you talking to me? And Jesus comes back with a theological response. Baby, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's asking you for a drink, you would have asked me in the first place and I would have given you some living water. Ooh, and this woman, I love her so much because she has a response. Sir, she said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. You're talking to me about this living water. You're out of line being in this space on the Samaritan side of the city. And you're, you don't even have a bucket, dude. You, you don't even have the, the means with which to do what it is that you're asking to get done. And, and, she, and she goes on to say, do you think you're greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock? So this woman, she knows her, the she knows her doctrine. She knows why she's there. She understands the history of her people and she is contending for their truth. And Jesus comes right back at her with his. Everyone who drinks of this water is going to be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I will give them will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Woo! It's getting really hot in here. They have a conversation about her personal life, which for our conversation today is irrelevant. I want to press on to the theological questions. Because the woman said to Jesus, now she's calling him, sir, I can see you're a prophet. So he went from like brother on the well to sir to prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem let me, let me explain to you how, how my doctrine is different from yours. Let me explain to you how I see the Godhead different than you. Let me explain to you why I do communion different than you do. Let me explain to you why I think leadership in the church ought to look one way versus another. We can have conversations. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. What's Jesus saying? I know we've been fighting for a long time about what's supposed to happen on this mountain. But the reason I'm here is because we're doing a new thing and a new day in a new way. The reason I'm here is because, whoo, you Samaritans worship what you don't know, and we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. J Jesus keeps his conviction about the Jewish point of view, but then he presses on and he says, yet a time is coming and now has come when the true worshipers, not about this well anymore, baby girl, when the true worshipers are going to worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. So what I see is she comes to the well with her Samaritan point of view. Jesus comes to the well with his Jewish point of view, but ultimately he rises them both up to a brand new vision of what unity in Christ can be. After we've talked together about the stuff in our past that clouds our perceptions one to another. After those revelations and after, after Jesus lifts her head 
and causes her to see something new and different, and also because of what he knew about her personal life. The Bible says she left her water jar. She came to the well to get water, but having been transformed by the conversation, she left the well, went back to her town, and said to the people, here she is, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? See, after I had a conversation with a real authentic person who was willing to talk to me about our differences of points of view, I recognized that God is bigger. I recognized that God is better than anything that he or I could have foreseen and understood. Because I had a chance to sup with you and feel the power of God in you, I am now changed. And what do I want to do? Because you loved on me in that conversation. What do I want to do? I want to go tell somebody else. That's what I want to do. I want to go tell somebody else. And she did. And the Bible says that because of her testimony, they were all changed. And not only that, they invited Jesus to come stay with them. The Jewish Jesus went to the east side. And he stayed with the people for two days. The Jewish people went to the west side. And he stayed with the people for two days. Jesus went to the north side. So Jesus is going to go everywhere you are to take him. And he expects for us to message this reconciliation. And we have to do that by going to the places of hostility. We cannot stay at home and expect this gospel to get reached out. We cannot be cozy in our own church and expect the light of God to shine. The message is that unity in the body of Christ matters. And it matters greatly. Because if we don't get it right through some courageous conversations, in love, with mercy, and understanding, what do we got to let go of? Black people, we got to let go of our resentment of this thing and our hate of this thing. We have enough stories to tell and we've cried enough tears. It was wrong, it is wrong, but we have the power of God and a conviction that he loves us to move forward from the tension and hostility. And those of us who have been in power in our country since the beginning have to lay down their sense of superiority, have to lay down their sense of entitlement, have to lay down their sense that this country is only for them. Woo! That if we are going to have a rich and amazing body of Christ that is transformative in our time, it's not going to matter if we're Jews or Gentiles or men or women or black or white. We are the messengers of reconciliation to get to one body, one faith, one hope, and one baptism. Through our one God who is above all, through and in, all and all. So whether you come on December 7th and tap into the beloved community or not, every single one of us has an assignment. We got a neighbor. We got a coworker. We have family members. We got to start some real conversations about bringing unity within the body of Christ. Because what we're going to unify on two basic principles. God is the Father and Jesus is Lord. God is the Father who loved us enough to send his son to die on a cross that our hostility with God would go away and that in our belief in that truth we are saved for eternal life and that we become ambassadors of the Most High God to be ministers of reconciliation.
And when we do that thing, the world will be changed. When we do that thing, Austin will be different. When we do that thing, the light of God will shine more brightly and the people of God will be more healthy, more whole, and have lives that they value. And we will have an amazing time because we'll all be friends loving one another. Everybody stand to your feet. It is now my privilege to invite anyone who who doesn't know yet Jesus as the Lord of their life, who hasn't yet been reconciled to God through belief in Jesus. Now is your opportunity to say today that I want to be reconciled upwards because I want to be the messenger of reconciliation outwards. If that is your prayer today and you want to make Jesus the Lord of your life, you can take your belongings and walk to this corner. Raise your hand under that exit sign over there to my left. There will be a messenger of God who loves you, who has been praying for you already and wants to talk to you about how you can give your life to our loving and amazing God. If you've already made that decision to to make Jesus Lord of your life, but you're looking for a church home, a place where you can be seen as an image bearer, the love of God, and where you can be lifted and taught and encouraged continually to be this messenger of reconciliation. We would love to be your brothers and sisters in Christ. We would love for you to join our church today. And if you have a prayer need, those of you that are here in the sound of my voice, you can certainly reach out to our um, advisors who are here, but anyone can call this this prayer line and there are people there waiting to love on you and lift you to the Father. You all may be seated and I thank you so much for your love and kindness and attention today. Church, I want you in an overwhelmingly extravagant way. Help me thank God for the message and the come on church no 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 help us thank God thank God for the Reverend Denise Denise Nance Pierce is what it says on Facebook the Reverend Denise Pierce she is indeed a gospel preacher and I don't know about you but the word of God has been preached today If it ain't ever been preached before, thank you.